Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 305. Today is January 8th, 2020. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, happy new year. I hope you had a wonderful holiday season. The new year is certainly starting out with a bang. Uh, we definitely got a Santa Claus rally. And in addition to that, look at how resilient this market is. We have all the drama with impeachment of President Trump. We have a shooting war and hostilities breaking out in the Middle East and all the other negativity going on. But what's happening with the market? Well, the S&P 500 and other major indexes are all putting in record highs. Momentum and breath are both strong. And while I do get worried uh, because I'm a contrarian, I get worried when the market's rising like this and seems to be every other day or every week or so putting in new record highs for the last, you know, better part of a quarter. That, that worries me. But at the same time, that does show the resilience of this market. It shows how many people are still lopsided and have been offsides worried about a recession that was feared to be coming last year. As you heard me say many times and go look at my YouTube channel, I made many videos over the last two years saying that there was no recession I think that was true then. I think that's true now. And so you have so many people that have been negative. They need to get into this market. And I don't think they're in yet. At some time, we're going to hit a blow off top and things will fall apart. I don't think we're there yet. But hey, we're not going to talk about that today. This episode is going to be dedicated to answering listener questions that came in during the month of December. I've got a number of questions here. I'm going to try and get them all in in this episode. And let me just preface everything by saying that I'm not offering advice or telling you what to do. I'm simply going to give you some of my own personal analysis and insight into the things that I look at when I'm analyzing a stock. As you know, for people that have listened for a long time, that I look at three things. I look at fundamentals, I look at trends, and I look at technicals. As I go through these different uh, stocks that people have asked about, I'm not going to hit each of those three categories for every one, but you'll hear that coming up as a reoccurring theme. And so real quickly, I'll restate what I've talked about in the past. When I look at fundamentals, to me, that is the most important thing that I start with, and it's where I get my veto power. I look at a stock or an investment opportunity first or foremost by how safe is going to be my investment. And I think the best way to determine that is to look at the underlying fundamentals and see what has happened in the past. And so when I look at a stock, I want to see a stock that has a long history of earning money, of having positive cash flow, of perhaps paying a dividend, of having good management in place. And if those fundamentals aren't in place, then I'm most likely not going to invest in the opportunity. That's why you don't see me taking chances with initial public offerings of companies that have no profits or why I don't dabble in things like cryptocurrency uh, you know, marijuana stocks, whatever the latest and greatest fad or new technology is, I generally don't invest in it because it's not proven. It doesn't have a reliable profit stream and earnings that I want to see fundamentally in a company. And so while that may be over conservative for a lot of people, it's not for me. It's been my experience over the last, you know, 30 some years of investing. In fact, getting close to 40 years in investing. I'm getting old here. But uh, over the 30 years that I've been investing, the 30 plus years I've been investing, 
I've learned that the best way to build wealth is to do it slowly, not try and hit home runs every time you're up at bat, and not pursuing all the latest fads and headlines and the things that other people are rushing into. When I've tried to do that in the past, I've generally lost money, and so that's why first and foremost, I start with a company that as best as I can tell is fundamentally sound. Okay, then the next thing I look at is trends, and when I look at trends, I'm talking about things that are both based on human nature, human interactions, as well as natural occurrences. So I'm looking at, you know, from the human nature side of things, I'm looking at demographics, I'm looking at politics, I'm looking at any type of human trend that could possibly be positively or negatively impacting that investment. I'm also looking at uh, trends of mother nature, right? I'm going to look at weather patterns. I'm going to look at floods and tornadoes and earthquakes and all those other type of acts of mother nature that can impact the profitability of a company or, or a particular sector. And then finally, the last decision I make after the, the investment opportunity has made it through those two filters, then I go and I look at the technicals or the chart pattern. And I'm looking for several things there, but generally the simplest way to say it is, is that I'm looking for price and volume action. Good old indicators of supply and demand. I like to talk about simple moving averages uh, for a couple reasons. One is the fact that they're simple. The other reason is, is that although you can use a lot more complicated methods, everything does come back and is some type of a derivative of a simple moving average. So while I look at a lot more things other than just the 50-day or the 100-day or the 200-day moving average, in this podcast, you'll mostly hear me talk about those three moving averages because, again, that's the industry standard and that's what all other trading methodologies are based on. So as I go through this list of listener questions, you're going to hear me talk about those three big screens that I look at, the technicals, the fundamentals, and the trends. So here we go. These are in no particular order. First question comes from Rakesh, and he asks what I think about Disney stock. Well, I made a video a couple years ago. You can check that out on my YouTube channel. I talked about the magic behind Disney, and this was at a time when most people on Wall Street were hating Disney. There was uh, a lot of thoughts that they were losing their momentum and ground with the, the problems and controversies they had at ESPN. And so a lot of people were hating on Disney. I pointed out the fact that Disney is a phenomenal stock. It's a company that has been run extremely well for many, many decades. And they have multiple streams of income which are moats around their business and they're very hard for competitors to come in and you know attack any one particular area but in particular Disney does all these things well you know they have the movie content they have the storytelling you know library of all the old original Walt Disney movies you know they have that franchise that's never going to go away they can always build upon it they have the money to go in and buy other studio productions like they've done with Star Wars. Uh, they own the theme parks. They make money from licensing products and selling all the kids' toys and all the related products. That's the long-term legacy of Disney. And then you add into the fact that now they're getting into streaming and you're going to see them getting into online sports betting. I mean, it is definitely a winning franchise. Now, having said all that, I personally don't like Disney where it's selling today. I think it's uh, gotten a little bit ahead of itself. Having said that, though, I'll tell you, I sold way too early. I held Disney for a couple years. I made a really good rate of return on it. Um, I put a call option in, though, on Disney to sell, 
at uh, between like $120, $128 a share. This was done, oh, I think uh, November, December of 2018 when stocks were depressed. I thought that Disney was likely to get up to its $120 level, which was an area that it had failed at many times. I figured it would get up to that level. It would fail. I would get to uh, keep my shares and the premium that, that went along with selling the, the call option. Well, lo and behold, last, oh, I don't remember when it was, maybe last uh, March when the stock actually did break out, it shot up and I had to relinquish my shares of Disney. So I did miss out on this last you know, $20, $25 move in the stock. But I do think that at this point, too many people like it. They're expecting too much from it. And for me personally, I wouldn't get back into the stock until there's some consolidation or correction uh, somewhere around, I don't know, something below $130 a share. And you may think, hey, how's it going to get that low? I mean, everybody loves it. Listen, stocks always move up and down. The reason I think that it could take a dip here is that, you know, in the next couple quarters, they may come out with lower earnings that, that are expected, or perhaps they have to scale back some of their plans. The streaming is obviously going to definitely help their business, but at the same time, it's Netflix that has had the first mover advantage. Netflix is the company that got the extreme crazy valuations, and I don't and I don't think you're going to see that apply to Disney because Disney isn't the first mover in this. Everybody's now into streaming, you know, different types of content. Everybody from Google, Amazon, Apple, the cable companies. I mean, everybody is in this now, and I think there's so much competition in this marketplace and the amount of money that it's going to cost to produce the content and acquire the new clients, I think it's going to be a whole lot harder than people think. And so while, yes, I still love Disney over the long term, I personally would be waiting for a pullback uh, for Disney to get below 130, pull up a chart of Disney, look at the technicals, look at where the support is, that $110 price tag. Uh, I'm not saying that it's likely, but I am saying that it's probable uh, you put an 18 times valuation on Disney's current forward earnings, and that would put you right at $110. So will it go that low? Well, I don't know if it will, but certainly if it did drop between you know, 110 and 130, I would most likely be a buyer of Disney on the dip. From a fundamental standpoint, the forward price per earnings of about 24, 25 times, I think that's a little too rich. And unless Disney can have some really hit it out of the park earnings reports in the in the coming next quarter or two, I'd be looking for a pullback in the stock. Now the next question comes from Darren, and Darren's asking about an ETF with the ticker symbol PUW. Now Darren, I'm not sure if that was a typo or not, but he asked about that ETF and he says that he doesn't own it, but it was recommended to him and he wanted to see what I thought about it. Well, the reason I mentioned, I'm not sure if that was a typo or not, I couldn't find any other ETFs that were similar to that, so I do assume you mean PUW, which was an ETF that was put out by Invesco, and it was the Progressive Energy ETF. The reason I say it was is because it's no more. In fact, it's been well over a year now, I think sometime maybe December 2018, that that ETF was liquidated and taken off the market. So Darren, if that's the one you're thinking of, well, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, I, I didn't like it then. I wouldn't like it now if it was an ETF. It really fit under the category of what's becoming very popular now, and these are ESG investments. ESG stands for Environment, Social, and Governance. So these are you know stocks and ETFs and other types of investments that are supposed to focus on environmental or social 
or some other type of cause investing. And, and by cause, I mean, you know, it, it's, a, it's a good cause. It helps the environment or it helps income disparity or it helps with some type of ism, racism, sexism, whatever. Uh, listen, I don't have any problems with social issues and supporting things like a good environment or equality for all people, but I don't try and have that packaged and sold to me through Wall Street. I'm not going to rely on someone in Wall Street to take my money and under the guise of some ESG policy, have them spend my money to do good things for me. That's not what investing is for. Investing is to get a return on your capital. How about I digress? Hey, the next question comes from the esoteric trader, and he's basically asking uh, more or less about a dogs of the Dow strategy. That's not specifically what he calls it, but he does want to get my opinion on IBM and 3M, which have been some underperforming stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. They're definitely value plays, and that follows along with investing in the worst performing stocks in the Dow Jones. That's what we call the dogs of the Dow strategy. You look for the stocks in the index that have had the worst performance over the previous 12 months, and you assume there's going to be some type of a regression to the mean, that this would be a value play, and that these stocks will do better in the coming 12 months because they did so poorly in the previous 12 months. So IBM and 3M definitely fit into that category. Um, let's, let's go to 3M first. I don't own 3M. I've played it back and forth this year by selling puts against it. Those have all worked really well for me. I think that 3M is likely to do better in the future, assuming that the stock market keeps holding up, that we get more global growth, um, you know, just global manufacturing, uh, the material companies, the industrial companies. I think as they do better, uh, 3M will do better as well. I like 3M because it, it fits the categories I've talked about before, where Fundamentally, they're a good, strong company. They pay over a 3% dividend. You know, they're a good, solid, blue-chip company. They've made money for 100 years. They're likely to probably keep making money. Uh, but having said all that, I'll also point out that they're not necessarily a value play. Their, their forward price-per-earnings ratio right now is, oh, something like 18 and a half, 19 times. So they're not necessarily cheap. But I do think that they're likely to do better in the next 12 months than they've done in the past 12 months. And from a technical chart standpoint, they do look like they're consolidating. It looks like they're trying to break out of this bottoming pattern. And I don't know if they can do that. But if they do, that'll attract all the momentum investors. And you could see 3M stock really get a pop and fill in that large gap that's been voided for the last two years. Now, as far as IBM, I sadly own this stock. I've owned it for a number of years. IBM is a perpetual dog of the Dow. Uh, the reason I bought it a couple years ago was that it looked to me like they were going to be making some management decisions, and I was really hoping that they were going to fire their CEO and get some new culture and new direction in an old company. That didn't happen. Uh, I'm starting to lose patience with them. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. The reason I like IBM is that although fundamentally you can argue that they're they're not fundamentally sound because they're in an old legacy business. At the same time, they have such an incumbent status and they're so entrenched in those old legacy businesses that although it keeps getting lower and lower returns every year, they still have an extremely strong cash flow that allows them to pay a dividend, to keep buying back their stock, and to have the money to invest in new technologies and to you know, reinvent and reinvigorate their company. 
So I would say this, I think from a value position, they do look like they might present some opportunities. The forward price per earnings ratio is only a 10 times valuation. They made what I thought was a good investment in Red Hat, which is going to get them more into the cloud. You know, they've done good things with their, their supercomputer system, Watson. They have a lot of patents and technology around blockchain. So I do think that IBM can reinvent itself and become a technology company into the 21st century. The company has been in a long downward consolidation trend for at least five years now. I think if they came out and with the announcement that they fired their CEO, that they're putting in a new management team, you know, throwing out the kitchen sink, and then followed that up by having some strong earnings and revenue growth in some of these key areas, then I think that stock could easily get a bounce that would take it up at yeah, 25 to maybe even 50%. Now, again, having said that, I thought that two and a half years ago, it hasn't happened. It may never happen. And so I'm losing my patience with IBM. Our next question comes from Jeff, and he's asking about United Natural Foods. This has the ticker symbol UNFI. And really, Jeff's question is two-part. I'll, I'll address the, the specific stock question first. As far as what I think of the stock, listen, it it's fundamentally a bad stock, meaning that it, it doesn't have any earnings. It's It's been losing money um, for next year or this upcoming 12 months. It's forecasted to have some profitability, and that would put the forward price per earnings ratio at seven times. So assuming that it does deliver and it can become profitable, then yes, I think that this would be a good investment. I think this could be a value play. And I think you could make a lot of money on it, but that's a big if. The problem with a company like this, and the reason I say that you could see such an astronomical move in the stock, is that it's such a small cap company. They only have something like um, $500 million in market capitalization. And with that, I think last year they lost $68 million. So if they can turn that around and move into profitability, uh, absolutely, you could see this stock double in value. But for me, I like to invest in larger companies, companies that have a history of making money. And so personally, I wouldn't invest in it, but the potential is definitely there if you're willing to take the risk. Now, onto the other side of Jeff's question, he brings this up because he is in the grocery business, uh, or at least the, the food service business of some sorts, and he's familiar with that company through his daily job. They're uh, you know, a supplier, a customer of his. So you know, he's asking about using your own personal work experience to find good stocks and investment opportunities. And Jeff, I think that's a really good idea. And in fact, that's how I learned to do what I do today. Before I was a professional investor, I spent a lot of years working in corporate America where I worked in the, uh, the field of business development and sales for industrial and manufacturing products. So I sold things like materials and machinery. That allowed me to not only travel throughout the United States, but also to eventually travel throughout the world and to work with both large and small manufacturers where I got a really good feel for how the economy worked on both a regional and a global scale. And I could take what I was reading in the newspapers and in the financial press, and I could evaluate that against what I was seeing with my own eyes as I visited these different manufacturing facilities all around the world. And more than anything, I attribute that to my ability to read through the uh, media news and propaganda agenda and dig down into the real data and figure out what's going on in the stock market. So 
Jeff, I think you should definitely be using your own situational awareness to look around the industry that you're in and use that to better educate yourself and use that to help you to formulate your investment strategy. I will throw out the uh, one caveat about you know what I'm talking about is not insider trading. You should never use any type of non-public information that you acquire through your employment to trade stocks. If you do that, you know you can go to jail. Look at what happened to people like Martha Stewart. If they went after her, they'd certainly go after you. So I'm not saying that you should use non-public insider information that you're gleaning from your job to help you learn what stocks to invest in, but you should use your situational awareness to look around and observe what's happening in your industry and in your sector and the impact that has in the overall global economy. I can't think of a better way to help you educate yourself as an individual investor. Now, our next question comes from Michael. He says that he's two years away from retirement. He's done a really good job. He has a little bit more than a million dollars saved up. This is in his thrift saving plan. That's a TSP. That's the retirement plan for government employees. And he wants to know how he should approach these last two years with his investments within the thrift savings plan. And what does he need to do in regards to his investment strategy after he's retired? Well, hey, Michael, this is a, a whole can of worms and it really opens up a big it depends. And I'm not trying to avoid your question here, but it's not a simple answer that can be easily, you know, put into a box and, and tied with a bow. You've done a really good job of saving more than a million dollars. Congratulations. That's easily more than 10% of the population does, probably, probably even less than that. So congratulations on that. That tells me that you're a disciplined saver, that you probably live well within your means, and that you've taken appropriate risks with your investments. And since you've done that over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, I think it's probably likely that you're going to continue to do that. So basically what I'm saying here is, you know, what you've done in the past is probably what you want to do in the future. What I don't really know is your risk tolerance and how much money you're going to need in retirement to, to uh, handle your living expenses. You know, is your mortgage paid off? Do you plan on totally retiring? You're going to have another side hustle to produce some income. Do you want to travel the world? I mean, you know, what are you going to do in retirement and how much of that living expense will be covered by your government pension? Because it really comes down to how much of this million dollars do you need? And also because I don't know your risk tolerance, I really can't guide you into giving you a simple answer where you should just, you know, put 40% in the stock market and 60% in bonds. I mean, that's generally the answer you'll get from a cookie cutter Wall Street financial planner. They're going to say, take your age, subtract that from 100 and that's the amount of money you should have in stocks or equities. So if you're 60 years old, you subtract that from 100, you should put 40% of your money in stocks and the other 60% of your money in bonds. Well, I don't buy that. I think that's too simple of an answer. But since I don't know more about your personal situation, I really can't give you a specific answer. I will say this. We are at all-time record highs in the stock market right now. I think over the next two years, not necessarily over the next two months, but over the next two years, particularly after we get past the presidential election and we get into 2021, 2022, depending upon what kind of government policies and central bank policies are in place at that time, I think it's very likely that we could see a petering out of the economy. And if that creates a 20, 25, you know, 30, 35% pullback in the stock market, you're not going to want to have your lifetime savings losing that much value. So while I wouldn't say, you know, take all your money and put it into cash and bury it in the backyard, you know, again, depending upon your own personal 
risk tolerance and to what extent you need this money to meet your living expenses, you might want to start taking some money now off the table while the market's at all-time record highs. And a good place to put it is in that G fund, which is not only going to pay you a competitive interest rate, but it's also going to protect your principal. Now, our next question comes from Andy, and Andy is asking about Occidental Petroleum. Ticker symbol is OXY. This is a company that I don't personally own. It, it uh, has been on and off my, my watch list over the years. Um, and actually, as we went into 2019, it was on a preferred list of 30 stocks that I would want to own. As it turns out, I didn't buy those. But if I was putting fresh money in the market, it would have been one of the stocks I would have purchased. It is kind of one of those dogs of the doll strategies. And so I was looking at energy companies to put into my portfolio. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go and answer some more of these questions. In particular to Occidental, though, I'll say this, that when I had it on my watch list, this was a long time before they made the acquisition of Anadarko. Anadarko is a uh, small petroleum company. I think they're a, a good, good, well-run petroleum company, and they, uh, they'll long-term be good for Occidental. But Occidental got into a bidding war with Chevron when they purchased Anadarko, and I think they paid too much. So as a result of that, Occidental Petroleum's price has, has really collapsed the integration of Anadarko and then all the other expenses that they have with their drilling operations and their exploration operations is not keeping up with the, the relatively low price we see in oil right now. So their forward price per earnings ratio is something like 45, 50 times earnings. And so they either need to really see some major synergies and improvements with their efficiencies and in their exploration and drilling, or they need a huge increase in the price of oil. I don't think we're going to get a huge increase in the price of oil anytime soon. Now, I don't know enough about the day-to-day -day operations of Occidental to know if they can get their synergies and their efficiencies in line with other major oil companies. So personally, I wouldn't be buying Occidental at this point. Having said that, and from a, a purely chart technical standpoint, I, I will say this. Their stock is lower than it was when... We saw the commodities crash in 2016, and it's even lower than where it was a decade ago during the financial crisis of 2008. They are either the worst performing oil major or at least one of the worst over the last decade. While that's all a bad thing, it also means that the bar is very low for them to overcome. And so the slightest improvement in their earnings potential, I think you would see this stock break out and pop, you know, 10 to 25%. And if you have a real risk tolerance, you may want to take that chance because this company also pays a 7% dividend. And so as long as they can keep meeting that dividend, and if they can show any improvement over the next, say, 12 to 18 months, then you could see this stock really move up. Personally, though, I wouldn't put my money into it. Now, our next question comes from Arlen. He's asking about Eventbrite. This is ticker symbol EB. Hey, this is, uh, again, one of those stocks that would never make my fundamental screen that I talked about. They don't make money. They were an IPO that came out, um, I don't know, maybe a couple years ago. They're currently down about 30% from their IPO high. And at one point, uh, a few months ago, they were down as much as 50%. This is one of those companies that has a great story. They're very popular. They're real hip. They got a very interesting business model. They could make a lot of money someday. 
My beef with them is that they're just not making money today. And so they're way out of my risk tolerance. This is a company that only has $320 million in sales. They lost $68 million last year, and yet they have a market capitalization of about $1.8 billion. So yeah, they're like a double unicorn. From a technical chart standpoint, they do look like uh, maybe they have bottomed out. They have been forming an upward channel. If you really want to take some risk, you could get a bounce with this stock. But again, for me and my money, fundamentally, it's unsound, too risky for me. Next question comes from James, and I may not have his full question. I, I cut and pasted these questions out from people's emails, and I I might have cut off his question because uh, the way I'm reading it now, he's asking about the Vanguard Total Market Index, which includes Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, International, and Total Bond Fund. So, James, I'm not familiar with one Vanguard ETF or one Vanguard stock that includes the total stock market and bonds. And so I'm not sure if you're asking about that or if you're just asking about those individual asset classes and the Vanguard indexes. So let me just say this. As far as Vanguard, they're a phenomenal company. You can't go wrong investing with Vanguard with what they do and their index funds. They're among the best and the cheapest in the world. And so while I don't always invest in Vanguard funds, I certainly wouldn't fault anybody that, that exclusively does. They're a fantastic company and a great value. In particular, with these total market type funds, whether you're looking at either their mutual funds or their exchange traded funds, they have you know different names for indexes that are covered in both categories. One's just a mutual fund, one's an ETF. There's really no difference in them. The ETF VT, ticker symbol VT, that's the total world ETF. That's going to try and mimic the performance of every publicly traded stock in the world. All the U.S., all Europe, all Asia, small cap, large cap, whatever they can find. It is, in its essence, perfect diversification as far as equities go. As I mentioned, I'm not familiar with a Vanguard fund that merges both the total stock market and the total bond fund. But from just a pure equity standpoint, VT is going to diversify you across the world. And so if you think in general that the global economy is improving, but you don't want to take a chance by specifically investing in the United States or specifically investing in Japan or specifically investing in Germany or Europe or Brazil, then you can invest in this fund knowing that you're going to get broad exposure. And as long as overall the global economy is improving, then you should see improvement in your asset price. It's a well-managed fund. It's very inexpensive. It has underperformed the S&P 500 over the last 18 months or two years or so. So, you know, again, from a, a regression to the mean standpoint, that could mean that over the course of this year, you could see VT outperform the United States, particularly if we get global growth. It's, you know, three, three and a half percent, and we see two or less than two percent growth in the United States. Now, as I mentioned, Vanguard has all types of index funds. Um, this, this VT fund is all equities. You can invest in Vanguard funds that are, you know, exclusively United States index funds. You can get Vanguard funds that are global funds that exclude the U.S. I mean, it's really across the board, and it, it depends on what sector of the global economy you think is going to do best. 
Now, as far as index investing in bonds, personally, me, I would be avoiding them at this point. And if I was in bonds, I would be going very short durations, um, certainly no more than two years or so. Uh, the reason I say that is that, you know, interest rates are historically so low. I mean, right now, the 10-year treasury is, you know, 1.8%. Could it go lower? Yeah, it, it could. But at some point in the future, it's likely to go up. And whenever interest rates go up, the price goes down. And that means you could lose principal investing in bonds. So for me, I am definitely avoiding any type of mid to long-term bond funds. Our next question comes from Mike, and Mike is asking about Energy Fuels, Inc. The ticker symbol on that is UUUU. Yeah, you heard me right. UUUU. It's a uranium company. He has a long list of facts where he states the importance of uranium and how uranium is likely to increase in value because of uh, the need for it in, in things like uh, not only defense, but energy generation. And I agree with this whole long list that he has here. But having said that, I'll also say that this stock trades for under $2 a share at something like, I don't know, $1.80. It pays no dividends. It has no current earnings. It only has about $186 million in market capitalization. And its revenue, the total sales that it has, total global sales, are only $8 million. To me, that's a big red flag. And it isn't that this company may not do well in the future. It's just way beyond my risk tolerance. $8 million in sales? I mean, this is a micro, micro cap stock. I like to focus first and foremost on fundamentals. I'm looking for big blue chip companies that have survived and made money in good times and bad, and I'm just not a major risk taker when I don't have to be. And so while this stock under the right conditions could just erupt and, and literally be worth 10 or 20 times its current value in a, in a relatively short period of time, it could absolutely do that. But for me and my money, I just wouldn't want to take the risk. I mean, I, I looked up the major owners of this stock and Morgan Stanley was one of the companies that came up as, a, as an investor in this, in this company. Morgan Stanley, you know how huge they are, how many assets they control. They own less than a million dollars worth of this stock. So on a risk-adjusted basis, think of the very, very small percentage of Morgan Stanley's assets, overall asset portfolio, is invested in this stock if they only own less than a million dollars worth. I got to assume that the guys at Morgan Stanley are a lot smarter than I am. And if they're only willing to put such a small amount of money into this stock, then I likewise would only want to put a very small percentage of my portfolio into this stock. And when you're talking about such an overall small position, well, to me, it's just really not worth the effort. And our next question comes from Matt, and Matt is asking about Lockheed Martin. That's uh, ticker symbol LMT. And so he's asking about Lockheed Martin specifically and the defense sector in general. Well, hey, Matt, over the last week, we've seen how much the defense sector can move and companies like Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics and other companies in that defense sector, we've seen how quickly they can move both up and down during times of military uh, conflict. So I'll say this, I wouldn't necessarily be running out and investing in defense sector stocks right now while we have you know, conflicts going on in the Middle East. But I do think that at the right buy point, you should have some type of 
military armament type stocks in your overall portfolio because we live in a very dangerous, very uncertain world. There's always going to be a market for military spending. It's kind of like healthcare. It isn't going to go away. Over the long run, it's recession-proof. War is always profitable, unfortunately. And while I specifically don't have Lockheed Martin in my current portfolio, I do have the ETF ITA, which is an ETF that focuses on the United States aerospace and defense industry. Now, this ETF has done well, but over the last year, it has uh, done a little bit of underperformance. And I would attribute that mostly to the fact that one of its major holdings is Boeing. And we know that Boeing's had a tough year. So even with that, the, uh, the ETF is averaging, you know, with dividends, I think, uh, in excess of 10% a year on an annualized basis. And so I like that ETF. I'm happy with it. Um, if you don't want to take the chance and invest in one specific defense sector company, then getting the broad diversification from ITA is definitely a good way to do it. Specifically, as far as Lockheed Martin, they're a good company. Um, their forward price per earnings ratio is reasonable. I think it's around 17 times. That's consistent with the market. They pay uh, a slightly higher uh, dividend than the S&P 500. They got a little bit over 2%. And of course, there'll be ups and downs with it. But again, we're not going to see the military hardware industry go out of business anytime soon. So you may not want to buy it now. I'd wait for a pullback down to the you know 50, 100-day moving average. But I definitely think that military-type hardware companies definitely belong in your long-term portfolio. Next question comes from Daniel. And Daniel is asking about a long-term buy-and-hold index investing that can take advantage of the robotic and automation trends that are happening. Well, Daniel, if you haven't read my book, The Robots Are Coming, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, but to specifically answer your question and to follow up on what I said in that book, as far as an index fund, there are two main ones that focus on it, and that's BOTS, B-O-T-Z, and ROBO, R-O-B-O. I personally own BOTS, and the reason I own that is because it's more internationally based. And I really think that as good as U.S. technology is, I do think that the Japanese have some really superior robotic technology. And I also like what the Germans and the Swiss are doing, not so much from a software standpoint, but definitely from a precision equipment manufacturing. And so personally, I would rather take a global exposure to automation rather than the ETF Robo, which is really mostly focused on, on U.S. companies. But having said that, it really is six of one, half a dozen of the other. If you look at the holdings of bots versus Robo, you know, there's probably 75, 80% coverage between the two. So you probably can't go wrong with either one of them. They're not necessarily at a buy point right now. I mean, it was a great time to buy a year ago. But again, I, I would think that that is something that for a long-term investing and for having it in your portfolio, there's definitely a place for it. Look to buy it on a pullback, try and get in you know, at the 50, 100-day moving average. Also, I'd add to that that I also like the ETF HACK, H-A-C-K. That's also in my portfolio. That is not specifically a robotics company. It's focused on companies like Palo Alto and others that are involved in internet cybersecurity. But I really think that things like automation and 5G and cloud computing, that's all you know one big enterprise. And so as robotics and the use of 5G goes up, I think we're going to need more cybersecurity. 
And so I would expect the companies that are in HACK, H-A-C-K, I think that ETF will do well. Uh, again, not necessarily the time to buy it now. It was on sale six months, a year ago. It's done extremely well over the last quarter. And um, I would look to you know buy into that position if you don't already own it when it drops down to the 50 or 100-day moving average. Let's see. Next question comes from Paula, and we have a couple questions from her. First one is about VWO. That's a Vanguard Emerging Market Index Fund. You know, we talked about Vanguard funds just a minute ago. Well, Vanguard has a really good emerging market fund. It's VWO. And what I'm going to say about this fund would be equivalent to any of the emerging market index funds. So that would include EEM. That's probably the most popular emerging market fund out there. Uh, Schwab has a really good emerging market fund. Um, that's SCHE. There are a lot of them out there, and I actually own all three of these in my own personal portfolio. VWO, EEM, and SHE, it, um, you know, it all depends on when I'm buying and what I'm buying and what broker I'm using to do it, uh, where I may switch back and forth between them. But you know, for the most part, an index fund is exactly what it says. It's an index fund. It's generic to the particular sector that it's focusing on. So for the most part, you know, if you're buying into a good quality index fund, whether it's Vanguard or Schwab or Fidelity or BlackRock or whoever, you know, those name brand quality, low cost providers of exchange traded index funds, they're all pretty much interchangeable. And so Paula's question is, is that uh, emerging markets hadn't done very well in the past year. Do you expect it to increase in value based on the outlook for 2020? And yes, I do. And in fact, when Paula sent this in, you know, this was earlier in December, emerging markets have actually done quite well. They, they've been doing well for the last four months and quite well for the last six, seven weeks or so. They're actually starting to catch up to and in some cases outperform uh, the U.S. indexes. And I think that will continue through 2020. Um, in a lot of ways, this is just really a matter of regression to the mean. Emerging markets did extremely well in 2017. They had a very bad 20. 18, and then they had kind of a choppy 2019. And I think that has set them up for a better run this year, particularly if we do get an increase in global growth. I mean, everybody has been so negative on manufacturing and on commodities and on global recession that I think they've way underweighted emerging markets. If you look from a valuation standpoint, the reason that U.S. stocks have done so well over the last two years has very little to do with the earnings disparity, and it's really been all about value expansion. The forward earnings in the S&P 500 right now is somewhere around, you know, 18, 19 times earnings, where the forward valuation on emerging markets is more like 13 times. And so from a pure value play and a regression to the mean standpoint, I think that emerging markets can do well, even if they don't necessarily earn any more money. It's just a matter of investor sentiment feeling more confident with emerging markets and raising that valuation from, you know, 13 times earnings to, say, 14 or 15 times earnings. I certainly don't think that emerging markets are going to the same high-flying valuations that we see in the U.S., so I don't think we're going to get 20 times earnings on emerging markets anytime soon. But we certainly could see valuation expansion. And, you know, when you're talking in lower numbers like this, if you go from a 13 times to a 15 times, that can translate into a stock price increase of 15%. So as long as the global economy keeps chugging along, and if we see you know, anything near or above 3% global growth, 
which I think is highly likely, then I do think that emerging markets still have a long way to run. Now, one caveat to that is we never know, as I've been saying for several years now, we never know what kind of tweet is going to come from the White House or what kind of shenanigans may come from Beijing. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Hey, one other thing, let me digress on emerging markets. I was just recently looking at some data on this. I've owned emerging markets on this part of my investment cycle. I ventured back into emerging markets starting in uh, December of 2016 and January of 2017. So basically, after Trump was elected, but before he took office is when I started buying into emerging market funds. So that's three full years of investing. And of those three years that I've been in emerging markets, there was one really good year, there was one really bad year, and there was one really choppy year. So I would say, in general, it's been three years of a very challenging environment, given, given what's happened with tariffs and trade wars and, uh, you know, the overall fear of a slowdown in, in the global economy. Uh, but in spite of that, in spite of the uncertainty and really the unprecedented trade war tariff stance that President Trump has taken over the last two years, you know, in spite of all that, if you had been in emerging markets over the last three years, the total return, and that includes the 3% plus dividend that they pay, I think you would see that you would have received an annual rate of return of definitely more than 10%, probably in the 11, 12% range. And as I mentioned, I think they have further to run, uh, particularly when you think about this. As of right now, emerging markets are still about 15% below their high from 2018. From January 2018 is last time they peaked. So they're 15% away from that high, and they're not even on a relative basis where they were back in 2008, more than a decade ago. So I definitely think there's room to run under the right circumstances. Now, Paula's other question is about changing demographics, something I talked about in the episode about Ray Dalio. I'm not going to get into that in this episode. That's something we need to, to dedicate a, a whole uh, probably series of shows to. So we'll get to that in the future. I'm going long here, and I still got a couple questions to go. So next question, I'm not going to mention who this is from, uh, and the only reason for that is that this person is asking about a company that they work for that's currently getting bought bought out. So I don't want to uh, I don't want to bring up their name. I want to keep some confidentiality into it. But they're asking about Diplomat Pharmacy. This is DPLO is a ticker symbol, and Diplomat is being acquired right now by United Health. That's ticker symbol UNH. Now, as far as my opinion on both of these, I think Diplomat is a horrible stock. I wouldn't want to own the stock and I wouldn't want to work there just because of the unreliable performance of the company. And again, this is a good example to focus on fundamentals. Diplomat has a market capitalization of a little bit more than $300 million, so they're a very, very small, small cap company. And despite the fact of how small they are, they have an incredible burn rate through cash, and they've lost an immense amount of money over the years. Now, the latest statistic is so high, I'm not even sure if it's right. I looked it up at two different places, and so I'm going to go with it. But my data is telling me that last year alone, they lost $5 billion. Right? This is a company that only has $300 million in market capitalization. So from a fundamental perspective, John is not putting his money in this kind of a company. It's just way too risky. And that's often the case with pharmaceutical and biotech type companies and any type of really, really leading edge 
technologies. And that's why, I, again, I generally stay away from something that's on the cutting edge. I do not want to be on the bleeding edge. Yeah, there's that one in a thousand company that can make you a millionaire, but think of all the companies that go bust. And Diplomat is one that almost did go bust. So rather than investing specifically in a small uh, pharmaceutical company or biotech company, I would invest in an index fund that's giving me diversification. And that would be uh, an ETF that's in my portfolio. And that's IBB. That's where I'm going to take my exposure to this more risky environment. But I don't want it to be on one company. I want it to be spread out over, you know, 80 or 100 companies. Okay, so back to the question. Um, our listener works for Diplomat. They're currently getting uh, an offer to be bought out by United Healthcare. Now, as much as I don't like Diplomat, I do like United Healthcare. Right now, the offer to buy Diplomat is at only $4 a share. And that's, that's actually like twice what it was just a few months ago. The stock was trading for around $2. And if you go back, oh, I don't know, four or five years ago, this was a $50 stock. So it's fallen from grace. And I would say that the good news here, the only good news for this stock is that United does want to come in and buy them. I think United Health is a really good company, solid company, fundamentally sound. I, I wouldn't run out and buy them today. Uh, again, I, if you'd have bought them three or four months ago when they were on sale, that would have been a good time to get in. But I think over the long run, United Healthcare is a good stock to own and it would be a good company to work for. Next question is from Craig, and Craig is getting his money's worth here. He's actually uh, asking about three different stocks. Let's see if I can get to them all. First one is Verizon. Well, I do own Verizon. I've owned it for a few years now, I guess almost three years. I think Verizon is a good, solid company. It fits all the fundamentals that I talked about before. It pays a 4% dividend. Its price per earnings ratio is well below what the average is for the S&P 500. It's a, a utility-type stock. You know, in the fact that it's a subscription basis, people are going to continue to pay their cell phone bill month after month. Uh, it has a good user base in place now. It's going to benefit from new technologies that come on, things like 5G. I think you're going to see a lot of 5G hype. And so maybe, maybe not, we'll see a bounce in Verizon. But overall, I think it's just a good dividend, high quality blue chip stock that, you know, it has a place in my portfolio. You may want to look at it for years. Uh, again, I wouldn't necessarily be running out buying it today, but watch it. It is um, it is pretty close to its, uh, I think it's 200-day moving average. It's, it hasn't been keeping up with overall market performance, uh, but that's what it does. It, it Watch it. it. It has a very distinct personality in its chart pattern. I'd say just about any time it's below its 200-day moving average is a really good time to buy into a stock that you want to hold for a long term You'll, long term, you'll get that capital gain as well as that reliable dividend that'll pay, you know, quarter after quarter. The other stock that Craig asked about is BNS. That's the Bank of Nova Scotia. Now, I'm not sure why BNS has so much underperformed the other financial players. Uh, I'm not, I, I don't follow it, so I, I don't know if it has specifically to do with, uh, you know, the economy of of Nova Scotia, or if it's the country of Canada in general, or uh, commodity prices, Eastern Canada, I just don't know enough of the fundamentals of that stock to know why it's done so poorly. I do know that Canada has been in, in a real fix here. Um, they've had problems with the general decline in overall commodity prices. They've 
having some real challenges with the real estate uh, valuations. And so that may be where the problem is. And if you think back to the U.S. financial crisis in 2008, back then the Canadian banks really weathered the storm quite well. They had none of the bad loan exposure that we had in the U.S. Now, maybe that is shifting because right now I think that U.S. banks are really in a strong position, but there could be weakness in the Canadian banks. So I would approach this one cautiously. It could be a value play, but for me and my money, I'd be focusing on U.S. banks. I own a number of them. Um, for example, I own J.P. Morgan. Uh, had that for a couple years now. It's been a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, performer. I would rather invest in a company like that than these Canadian banks that may have some exposure to both uh, lower performance of Canadian commodities and the extremely high valuations of Canadian real estate. And then Craig's other company was ExxonMobil. That's ticker symbol XOM. I own this company. I own a number of uh, energy and oil petroleum companies. I bought into them late in 2019. I would say that if you don't want to own a specific oil company, you can own an oil ETF or an energy ETF that I own, which is XLE. It pays a 3.7% dividend, and it gives you broad exposure over you know, all the oil majors and, and some of the oil miners, you're, and you're getting not only the producers, but there's you know people in there with the pipelines and companies like Schlumberger that does the um, oil field servicing. And so it's just broad exposure to the overall energy and petroleum sector. Overall, I would say that I like energy. I think that it's from a contrarian standpoint, it was uh, beat up too bad this last year. However, having said that, I do worry that we're still in a period of glut for overcapacity in both natural gas and petroleum. I think that we've definitely seen that with the price performance of oil and the oil companies. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, they're not reacting with the same volatility with violence in the Middle East. You know, normally you'd have a problem in the Middle East and you'd see a big skyrocketing in the price of oil and oil companies. That's not happening. So that's an indication of not only the lack of dominance of the Middle East and of OPEC, but also of just the overall abundant supply of oil. And so although I do have it in my portfolio and I enjoy collecting the dividends, I mean, a, a company like uh, ExxonMobil, it pays about a 5% dividend, just shy of 5%. So it's a really good, reliable stock from, from the dividend standpoint. I do worry about the price fluctuation. I think that there's definitely a glut and an oversupply that's going to probably extend through this year. But I do think that that'll catch up and we'll see a real need for supply as we move into 2021 and 2022. Um, there's just been a real lack of new exploration and new rigs on the market. And so once we get through this, this recent part of the glut and some of the smaller oil plays go out of business, the consolidation and the lack of supply will be really good for the industry. But again, we may have to wait for a couple years to get there. Now, our last and final question comes from Dan. And I'm only going to touch on it because he's asking about retirement and, you know, I've dedicated to other episodes about it and it'll definitely be things we talk about in the future. But just real quick on Dan's question, you know, he's asking, how do you know when it's time to retire? I'll preface this by saying that, you know, I'm not a big fan of retirement. I know there's a big fire movement out there for financial independence, retire early. Well, listen, I'm all about the financial independence, but I have no desire to retire early. 
my philosophy in life is find a job or a career that you absolutely love and that you get paid for and then just do it forever. But in terms of Dan's question, you know, when are you ready to retire? Well, listen, it all comes down to income. And you have to ask yourself and you have to be really, really honest. You know, what are your living expenses? How much money do you really need to live? And once you have that number, then it's simple mathematics. And you just have to add up what your retirement income is going to be. And so that's generally three sources. You might have a pension, you have Social Security, and you have your own savings. So if you have a pension, that's easy to figure out because you'll know what that amount is. Social Security, also quite easy to figure out what your payment is. The real trick here, and it's what confuses everybody, but it's how much are your retirement savings, what kind of income can they produce, and how long will it last? And I'll just say this, I really like the 4% rule, which is don't plan on spending any more than 4% of your retirement savings. So if you have a million dollars, then you can assume that you easily are going to have $40,000 of retirement income coming from your retirement savings. If you only have $100,000, well, you're only going to have $4,000. That 4% rule may seem overconservative and too safe, and it is, but that's why I like it. You know, your retirement is a journey, and uh, there's, there's a really wise saying that says, before you go on vacation, take half the clothes and twice the money you think you're going to need. And I think we can paraphrase that statement and apply it to our retirement journey. Spend half as much money as you think you're going to and have twice the savings. And that's because when you're talking about retirement, it isn't a matter of a year or two. Depending upon what age you retire at and what kind of longevity you're going to have, you may be living for 20 to 40 years. And there's so many uncertainties from living expenses, your medical needs, what's going to happen with inflation, the overall economy. I mean, that's why I don't put a whole lot of effort and time in, a, you know, quote, financial planning. I mean, it's garbage in, garbage out. Sure, you can plug any numbers you want to in a spreadsheet and come up with a great plan. But what's Mike Tyson say? Your plan goes away when you get punched in the face. So that's why I like the 4% rule. I mean, think in general, in good markets and bad markets, you can pretty much rely on the fact that you're probably going to generate at least 4% of a rate of return on your retirement savings. And so if you're only drawing it down by 4%, then that retirement savings becomes perpetual and you never spend it down so you'll never outlive your money. So that's one very conservative way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, is to be a little more optimistic and maybe a little bit more realistic and plan to withdraw your savings at a rate of 6%. And you may be saying, well, hey, John, if you look at the long-term average of the performance of the stock market and the S&P 500, well, it, you know, on average over 100 years, it returns about an 8% rate of return. So, you know, why would I be saying only draw down your savings at 4% or 6%? Well, it may be true that you could invest your retirement savings in the S&P 500 and long-term be getting a compounded rate of 8%. But if you're spending at that rate, you're also not allowing your money to grow. And so you're going to be unprotected by inflation should it occur in the future, right? If you're able to live on $60,000 today, well, that $60,000 probably not going to have the same buying and spending capacity in 30 years from now. And so if your rate of return on your investment portfolio is 8% and you're only spending it down 4 or 6%, 
Well, you're allowing the principle to continue to grow. And so you're going to try and combat some of those effects of inflation. The other side of the argument is, is that if you're in full-blown retirement and you're drawing down your income, well, you probably don't have the risk capacity to be 100% in the S&P 500. And so you're likely not to be getting an 8% return on your money. You're going to get something less than that. I digressed a little bit, but that's why I like the 4% drawdown. Um, but again, let's look at the 6% drawdown. That also makes a lot of sense, even given the fact that you may be drawing down on your principal. And so that means that you know, you're not maybe getting a full 6% earnings yield on your retirement investments, but you're taking that much out every year. So each year, your retirement savings get lower and lower. But even if that's the case, that doesn't mean you're going to run out of money overnight. Okay, if you're getting just say a 2% rate of return on your portfolio and you're drawing it down at a rate of 6%, that means that compounded annually, you're drawing down your savings by a rate of 4% every year. You can go online and use some software, some apps out there that'll show you that if you're drawing down your principal at a rate of 4%, that's still going to last you a couple decades. I don't have the numbers in front of me. I've talked about this in the past. I promise in an upcoming episode, we'll specifically do a show that's dedicated to how this drawdown principle works and how long your money can last into the future. But off the top of my head, a 4% decrease in your principal would still make your money last something like close to 25 years. And so then it just all comes back to how long you're going to live and how long you're going to work for. So if you retire at 65 and you draw down your money at a rate of say 6%, it's only earning a couple percent in a safe U.S. treasury bond, well, you're probably not going to run out of money until you're well into your late 80s. And so, hey, that's not a problem, of course, unless you live until you're 90 or 100. One final question here, and this actually came in from a number of people, so I won't credit it to anybody, but a lot of people asked what stock I'd recommend for 2020. Well, hey, you know, I don't recommend any one stock. I like to have a portfolio of uh, you know, well-diversified 20, 30 positions. But hey, I'll play along with it. If I had one stock to recommend, hey, I, I can't even do that. I'm going to recommend two stocks. And I, rec I say recommend in air quotes. I'm just telling you two stocks that have been beaten down and I think are likely to do fairly well going forward in, into the future, you know, should do well as we get to the end of 2020 and, and um, there on out. They're good, solid blue chip stocks. Uh, one of them in particular has been really beat down, and that's Boeing. Boeing is a stock that I've played options on it throughout this past year. I've done very well. I added it to my portfolio a few months ago. Um, you know, it's still in a consolidation stage, so I'm, I'm down, uh, I don't know, 5 6 7% on it. I'm not worried about it. Boeing is one of those companies that fundamentally is sound. They are a premier U.S. manufacturer, and they're also a global leader in aerospace and from a probability standpoint, despite how bad their problems may look now, they've got a big moat around their business and going forward into the future, you know, sometime in 2020, 2021, maybe 2022, I don't know when it's going to be, but I think that Boeing stock is going to be worth more in the future than it is today. I think that with a high degree of probability. And then the other stock, uh, which is done fairly poorly lately, uh, just in terms of the overall market, it's still still up for the year. Uh, but that's Home Depot. Home Depot has getting caught up in this whole brick and mortar retailer thing, you know, the Amazon disease. And um, 
while I don't think they're a, a value play right now, like I like I think Boeing is, I, I just think that Home Depot is a good, solid company, strong management, solid fundamentals. And yeah, they're going through some issues now, but sometime in the future, I think Home Depot stock will be more than than it is now. And that's the key to building your wealth. It's not getting rich quick overnight. It's not taking undue risk. It's making wise investments in assets that are going to appreciate in the future. Hey, thanks for all your questions. I'm looking forward to a prosperous 2020, and I hope you'll come back for future episodes. Until then, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.